Welcome to this special Mental Health Awareness Week episode of I Am, I Have, The Panel. This episode was recorded in front of a live audience at Podfest for Mental Health, organised by Happerful Magazine and Counselling Directory. Proceeds from all day tickets were donated to the Mental Health Foundation. We hope you enjoy this episode and please rate, review and share. So thank you all for joining us for this special edition of uh, Happerfuls. I am, I have the panel. Um, it's wonderful to have you here, really wonderful. And in I am, I have style, I'm going to ask you all to introduce yourself in your own words. So we're going to start with Grace. Hi, um, I'm Grace Vickery. I am a blogger, content creator, influencer, internet person. I started YouTube seven years ago. Is it seven? Yeah, I'm like an OG <laughs> blogger. Um, and I was doing just like makeup and fashion videos. And then everyone was saying, oh, you're so confident. And they didn't know what was going on underneath. So I sort of outed myself and I did a YouTube video called The Pressure To Be Perfect. And I got like an influx of followers. Um, and then I realized, mm, talking about your problems helps other people talk about theirs. And then that's when I sort of like became the internet's big sister. And I was sort of given that name. Since then, I've had two documentaries on BBC Three, show on MTV, have a book out. I've got a podcast called The Sister Space, which talks about healing, trauma, recovery, women's issues, social issues, periods, all that kind of stuff. And I try and develop myself, I guess, but in the public eye. And I look good whilst I do it. I love fashion and I love feelings. So that's what I do, style and substance, you know? And that's basically it. Wow. <laughs> yeah, Yvette beat that. <laughs> yeah, I definitely can't beat all that. <laughs> um, so my name's Yvette Caster. I'm a journalist, broadcaster and podcaster. Um, I've been a journalist pretty much all my career uh, and I also have bipolar disorder. So for the past couple of years, I've been co-hosting a podcast called Mentally Yours, which I set up for metro.co.uk, um, and that's been coming out for the past two years, every Monday, and we get a great mix of guests talking about all things to do with mental health. Um, we have a mixture of well-known people, um, celebrities, we've had people like Ruby Wax, Audley Harrison, but we've also focused generally on um, just more normal people or journalists and writers who are happy to talk about their own mental health stuff. So the idea is that when we start, set up the podcast, every episode was talking about a different mental health condition. So in there, we're, we've talked to people about schizophrenia, disassociative identity disorder, um, bipolar disorder. And yeah, in terms of me, I'm a freelance journalist now. I write for all different kinds of publications, um, lots of the nationals. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much it. But I love uh, pretty writing. much it. She says <laughs> after reading off all of that. But I love writing and talking about mental health um, in particular. So, yeah, that's great. Thank you. And Mark. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Mark. My story begins probably in Central Africa. My uh, father was a doctor. And my mo my mother's a teacher, so I was raised in a country called Rwanda. And that was really the direction of my life. My career was in international development for many years, working in different parts around the world and uh, living, uh, living in Asia, uh, particularly working on the question around 
um, massive displacement of refugees uh, from, from Burma into Thailand. And I thought that was my life's purpose, was to talk about and, and act on this issue around global poverty uh, and global injustice. And uh, for, for reasons I will go into in the course of the podcast, ended up refocusing not so much on physical deprivation, but on the question of mental deprivation and the, paucity of, and, and the quality of our inner lives uh, and the impact that that has on, on so many of us. And so about three years ago, started working for the Mental Health Foundation. The Mental Health Foundation actually started Mental Health Awareness Week back in 2001 and have been around for 70 years. I tried to tell people that I've been there since the start. Um, <laughs> this is... Um, Looking very good on it. Yeah. <laughs> and we've always tried to be, I think, on the cutting of trying to push the boundaries of what we understand about mental health and um, try to address the stigma and try and bring evidence, so research and policy into the changes that we can make at a societal level, at a community level and at an individual level uh, to live mentally healthy lives. I'm now the chief executive. That happened six months ago. That was a surprise. You look surprised. Yeah, that was a surprise. <laughs> I, I was actually delighted and it's, it's, it's a real privilege, a real privilege. It's great. Thank you. And April? Hi, I'm April. Um, <laughs> these guys are impressive. All right, let's give this a go. I am an actor and producer. Through having a rocky teenage period of life where I didn't know what was going on in my head or what my sexuality was, I chucked myself into work. So at the age of 21, in my second year of drama school, I started my own production company called Mini Productions. Um, I was just adamant that something in the industry that wasn't working at McDonald's, which I was doing, uh, was going to support my acting career. Uh, so over through the course of the last five years, I met my business partner, my rock, uh, the reason I'm probably still able to sit here and be here, Sarah. And, um, and we've created a whole slate of, of content from short films to branded to viral. We've just finished our debut feature, which means hopefully it'll be in the cinema. It took me uh, over 10 years to work out that I wasn't going crazy and, uh, and that bisexuality was a thing. And it wasn't until March last year that um, I was diagnosed with bipolar. And um, off the back of that, created a project which was my writing debut called Treacle. And um, it was a bisexual story on how bisexuals are treated, uh, which can affect their mental health. And I think that pretty much sums me up. Thank you. God, what a panel. So we're going to start with Grace's I Am. So Grace, you've told us, I am trying to go more and more deeply into myself so that I can get to the root cause of my pain and work my way back from there. I think trauma is so deeply ingrained that it can take years to unlearn the unwell coping mechanisms we've used. Yes, that is, I said that. <laughs> you did? I did. Do you want to tell us more? I am a sexual violence survivor um, and I grew up around domestic violence and just had a shocking childhood. I mean, it was like, mm, it had bits in it, but overall, it was a very unsafe environment for a child to be around. Um, and I also went to performing arts school. And so I feel like a lot of people that go through trauma often throw themselves into like career, like, I've got to be someone. And I think that's what I did. Um, so at a dance school, obviously, 
you're in a leotard a lot and there's issues with food as a whole in that sort of industry. So at 12, I developed an eating disorder, but didn't tell anyone, obviously, and was just very, very unwell. And I've, like, self-harmed before, and I was just very self-destructive and didn't know that how I felt, like, wasn't normal. Like, you didn't have to live like that. And it wasn't until 2016, really, where I, I truly started healing. And I think that the whole taboo around sexual violence and issues at home is the reason that I didn't get help before. And I actually did a show for BBC Three called Clean Eating's Dirty Secrets. Um, and it was about orthorexia and like the rise of clean eating and stuff. Sure. Yeah. And at the time, my mental health, I'd sort of like just thought, fuck, can I swear? Yes. Yeah, fuck it. <laughs> fuck it. Because um, I wasn't eating. I just thought, I can't be bothered anymore. Um, and I always thought, obviously, growing up like in the performing arts industry, that you had to look a certain way. And I grew up at a time where like the Kate Moss people were on yeah. the front of every magazine. And I was like, I need to be a size 8. Never going to be a size 8. So during that show, I met a psychologist or psychotherapist. And after the doc, she said, I'll oh, come back and see me just in case you feel a bit funny around food because in the show I had to eat like sweet potato for every meal for 10 days. It was just weird stuff. It was all about bloggers on the internet and what they tell you to eat. And I think like she basically saved my life. I got diagnosed with PTSD with her and an eating disorder. And when you picture an eating disorder, it's always like a very, very thin white woman. And I didn't fit that category. One, I'm mixed race, um, and two, I'm plus size. And even at my smallest, when I wasn't eating, I was still classed as plus size. So I was like, I can't possibly have an eating disorder because I'm not anorexic. Um, but I had a very anorexic mindset, right. but it manifested in binge eating because um, binge eating is actually um, a symptom of not eating. I started working with Emmy, and oh my God. Like, unlearning diet culture and all the stuff we've learned around food and bodies, I, I was like, I'm going to be here for life. Luckily, I've been there for a year and a half, and Emmy says I was like a duck to water, and I just absorbed all the information and dedicated my whole life to healing. And my, he my healing was very spiritual too, because I think that sometimes recovery and mental health help is designed for like everyone, whereas I think you need individual ways to heal. And for me personally, a spiritual aspect to it really helped. Um, so I'd read a lot of books on like trauma and holistic ways to help you heal. So life was great, and then shit hit the fan. Um, December last year, I felt like I had a spiritual awakening. I was like, I'm seeing life through different eyes. So um, yeah, January 2018, I was like, I'm not happy still. Like I'd learned all this stuff, and I think that when you really connect with your inner child, you see the world through your inner child's eyes again. And it was like I was like a little baby Bambi on ice. Um, and I was like, I'm still not happy. There's something still not right. My relationship went down the drain. I just wasn't happy. And then I just sort of like realized that when you peel back one layer, another one reveals itself and then another one. And I think that for me, healing is about going to the core of your pain. And then I realized that I had severe daddy issues um, like abandonment and rejection and I had issues with intimacy and because of my sexual trauma so then I thought okay I'm going to break up with my boyfriend I need to be a spiritual goddess 
um, I need to just go deeper and there's something still there. I could just picture my, my life and it was like, there was like this little black dot that needed me to go into it, right in the center. Um, so I thought, how do I heal my issues with men and really work on the sexual trauma that I've had? Um, so I just thought, I'll get a male therapist then. Learn to trust a man. And I started working with him in June and I see him every single week. And he's helping me go to the, the root of my pain because, because I'm so open about mental health because of my career. I'm trying to detach my, my healing and all my trauma mm. from my identity. It's become like, oh yeah, Grace is so great because she overcame things. And I'm trying to like let go of that. Mm. So I'm going to the root of my pain in order to let it go. And I try and showcase that online by talking openly about my therapy sessions or things that I'm learning with books that I'm doing and courses that I do. And I just try and make people see that mental health is just like changing your knickers. Like you just have to do it. You've got to look <laughs> after it. Mental health is like changing your Honestly, knickers. Honestly, you like just that. have to work at it every day. And I think I made every aspect of my life well and um, a healing part of it down to like what I eat and what I think and my friends and my boyfriend I've got a new boyfriend he's amazing so I just try and make every aspect of my life work for my brain and then life just is happier like I just have this joy even when I'm sad about like my inner child or things that have happened I just have this sense of joy all the time and I meet a lot of people that don't have that and I so I just think well let me just spread my lie and hope that one day they can find their own. <laughs> Thank you for doing that because you, you really do share how helpful it can be to do that work and that it's work as well and therapy is work and it's a long journey. I understand why people don't do it because it, mm. wow. Like I sometimes have to have like a day off the next day to just recover mm. from the crying mm. and it takes a lot of work but I feel like if you really, really believe in yourself, um, you do it it's an act of self-love I would say I agree and and is it right you're training to you're training in yeah. counseling yes yeah, so I get loads of um questions online and I I think I know my stuff but then I think I just need something to back that up so yeah I'm training to be um a sexual trauma counselor um, it's a passion of mine and then I want to go on to like do a master's and get degrees and stuff and I just think there needs to be more black therapists and more therapists that just look different and I think culture plays a massive part in mental health with identities and being plus as I think as well that's really important for people that have eating disorders that aren't technically Agreed. anorexic so I'm ready to just slay you know it's <laughs> <laughs> amazing yeah. thank you Grace Yvette your I am is I am a work in progress. Yeah, so it kind of follows on a little bit from what you were saying, Grace. I've been a journalist my whole career. For a long time, I kept my life sort of very in two sections. So I'd be a news reporter, and then later I was a sub-editor, then I sort of did some music stuff, and then I was basically took on more responsibility. Um, but I kept the mental health side of my life very private. But then uh, when I ended up working for Metro.co.uk for a few years... I decided I was just going to start writing about having bipolar disorder because <laughs> I just thought, well, what's the worst that can happen? So, <laughs> so I did. For a few years there, um, I was commissioning people who were also writing about mental health stuff. I was writing things to do with mental health. And for a long time, I've been getting out sort of content to, to do with that. 
But I think the reason that I wanted to talk about still being a work in progress is a lot of the times, as a journalist, I know how you're meant to write sort of a typical story. So in terms of mental health, you might have somebody who's been through something very difficult, but then they've overcome it, and then that's the end of the story. The other extreme, um, which also gets people's attentions, which are, you know, very sad stories and sort of statistics about, um, you know, things like suicide. And you do get these extremes. So I wanted to talk just a little bit about the fact that I think probably a lot of us in this room, if we know about mental health stuff, we're sort of in between, aren't we? Like, we're not necessarily at this shining pinnacle where <laughs> uh, we've overcome something and we're just like, yeah, I've got the best life ever. But we're also hopefully <laughs> not at the, the worst sort of points either. First of all, I'm definitely a work in progress. I'd like to see more narratives about the fact that people with mental health issues are sort of getting along day by day and are not necessarily heroes who have overcome something. Don't get me wrong, people who are who do sort of go through serious mental health issues um, can be very brave and it's very, very difficult. But I think sometimes there's a risk of sort of labeling them sort of heroes and then sort of forgetting about them or sort of equally sort of saying, well, this tragedy has happened to a family and then forgetting about them. If you have a long-term mental health issue like bipolar disorder, it's something that you learn to sort of manage and live with every day. So the idea of a work in progress is thinking about people with long-term mental health issues and sort of supporting them day by day and basically helping people to just improve their mental health just a little bit day by day. I still try very hard to be honest about my own sort of where I am with my own sort of mental health. So the fact that I have bipolar disorder, things have sort of been all right, but like last week, things were a bit down again. So I had a bit more depression. And you know, I'm 37 now and I do get a bit sort of that Oh, for God's sake, you know, like, is this still, <laughs> yeah. is this still yeah. an issue? You know, yeah. like, because I started getting depressed when I was 14. You know, I had my first suicide attempt when I was 17. And then I had my first manic episode um, when I was very young as well. And then through uni and then subsequently I had more manic episodes. But, you know, I'm th and, th and I'm 37 now. I feel like I've learned to manage it better. Mm. And I'm, I don't want to sort of bring everyone down and sort of say this is sort of like an ongoing thing, but it's... It is an ongoing thing. I don't think that's bringing anyone down, though. I think that's, <laughs> if anything, it can buoy people up to know that, that nobody is that kind of absolute finished product, and it's, it's not something to try and reach. I think you can gain understanding, like Grace has. You know, you can, you can learn more and more about where things are, are coming from, but actually all of our mental health will fluctuate throughout our life mm, that's regardless and, and it will it change and morph and if you have a condition as well that will be different again so I think it's a, an injection of realism that perhaps we need in the mental health narrative absolutely and I find just with my own work in terms of writing about mental health sometimes it can be quite bizarre you know I'll, I'll sort of I'll write these articles and I'll be pleased with them about sort of how they depict mental health or I'll do a podcast with Ellen um, and I think, oh, that's gone well. But then I will sort of go home and be a bit depressed. It's recognising that, I think. I pick and choose when I talk about mental health because I think sometimes it can re-traumatise you constantly talking about your trauma. Yeah. And I think, like, the ED stuff I don't really talk about anymore because it doesn't really serve me. I've been in recovery for, like, three years or two years, three years, and it's not a part of my life anymore. I don't think about food. I just sort of eat and that's it. Sometimes talking about it can make you go into, have to go into it, and then sometimes you get a bit stuck there. So I think like I can relate to that as well. 
And I love what you said earlier as well about just kind of keeping an eye on your mental health and sort of learning what works for you. And because I'm sure everyone in this room is like that as well. You know, if you've experienced mental health issues or if a friend of yours has, you'll get to know the things that help. And it's just reminding yourself about those things that help. So, yeah, work in progress. Thank you. I think we can agree we're all works in progress. So thank you for bringing that, that to the panel. Mark, I'm going to move on to you, which is... I am on a journey that has completely turned how I view the nature and development of mental health on its head. Excuse the pun. <laughs> Five years ago, I, I got a phone call and my, I, and my older brother uh, had been living with uh, depression for many years and he had gone for a job. He was working in the civil service. He had gone for a job, he didn't get it. And it just led to an episode of depression which was very acute for him. Uh, he was in hospital at the time uh, and he made an attempt on his own life and I got a phone call from my twin brother who's a psychiatrist saying Daniel's in trouble we need to go to the hospital so we went down to, to Cardiff and we were all, all by his side but my brother, my brother didn't make it and he uh, passed away just, just over five years ago uh, 39 years old a beautiful wife and two beautiful children. It was a turning point for us as a family. Uh, many people say that uh, suicide's like a, a mirror shattering into a million pieces. And part of putting that mirror together was trying to build a narrative of what happened. What happened to this brilliant young man who felt, the last time I spoke to him, he said, Mark, I've fallen into a pit and I can't get out of it. And he carried with him a narrative that for him, I think contributed, an understanding of his mental ill health that I think contributed uh, to the suicidal ideation. And the narrative that I had of his ill health at the time was that he had something faulty with his brain. It was something he was born with, and it was maybe a serotonin deficiency, but it was in his genes, and I used to describe it to my wife. It was like a San Andreas fault line in his brain. His brain just wasn't working properly, and he couldn't think happy thoughts. And, and, the, and the problem was, I think Daniel believed that. And that meant that there wasn't a lot of hope for him, because he felt the problem is me. Fundamentally, there's something wrong with who I am. And as I've gone on in the journey of, around mental ill health, my understanding has completely shifted that the principal problem isn't with me. It wasn't with him, but it was with the things that he had been through and the things that he had experienced and the environment which interplayed with his personality and his traits. As I started to look back in his life and see maybe the years of very acute peer victimization and bullying on a systemic level for years and years, maybe that was relevant to his depression. Maybe uh, the fact that my mother had depression when he was young and wasn't able as much to attach with him as she was going through her own period of depression, maybe that had an effect on his own self-concept. And the more I've understood now is coming back to this idea of our human needs, that fundamentally uh, many mental health problems, in my understanding, are 
a reasonable response, a realistic response to um, traumatic and difficult events that we face in our lives. They're reasonable. I will finish by just saying, you know, for me, I feel like there's like a human wheel of need that we all have. We all need, turns out all human beings, we all need love. We all need human connection. We all need dignity. We all need security and safety. We all need meaning and to make a contribution. And it turns out that if we are systematically denied those needs repeatedly, just like if we were denied food and thirst, we will become unwell. So it opens up how can we create a society where that happens less of the time? And how can we then develop the therapeutic and healing environments that enable us to heal? Um, because we'll all, to some extent, have been denied those fundamental needs at different times. But to me, it put a completely different understanding uh, on what my brother had been. And I just wish that I could have come back to him and said, Daniel, you don't have to blame you. And there's such a massive should. I always remember him feeling like, in 39, why the, why the fuck am I still here in this fucking hole? Mm. I shouldn't be here. And he was carrying the responsibility instead of all of us in the family and those of us, all of us carrying the responsibility because it wasn't just down to him. So. Thank you for sharing that with us. And I really loved what you said about the needs and that, that we all have times when we don't have those needs met, I think. It's good to understand that and understand how the view of mental health has changed as well. And the Mental Health Foundation plays a massive role in that. So thank you for the work that you do there as well. April, I'm going to move on to you and your I am. I am aware that in order to stop the stigma and to help others not feel alone, we need more positive representations of mental health and sexuality within media, especially as the two can be so closely connected. Yeah, and I think it's very poignant that um, we're sitting here on World Bipolar Day and, uh, and it's actually Bi Health Month. Um, so for me, it's, uh, it's incredibly moving um, because, uh, and also full disclosure, guys, I, um, this is probably the most public I've ever spoken out about um, uh, my mental health. So watch me as I stammer through. Um, <laughs> and I actually have a huge amount of, um, uh, to thank Happy Fool for that because they, they gave me an opportunity to write a letter to my younger self, which um, was possibly the best therapy I've ever had. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so I find sexuality and mental health can both be incredibly lonely and um, since ever I could remember I knew something wasn't quite right uh, mental health always <coughs> always was in my family um, but the sexuality side wasn't so even at the age of 15 when if you can imagine not only are you wondering why you think that girl is really attractive, but you've got this thing which you can only compare to having brain freeze when you drink a slushy too quick. The combination of those two at the age of 15 made me drive myself to an overdose. Um, it also um, <laughs> made me carve I hate life in the side of my leg. And it wasn't until, like I said, 10 years later, over 10 years later, um, that I was diagnosed with bipolar but I'd always dated girls, so that was all right. Kind of got over that pretty quick. Uh, but it took many little traumas to, to get to that stage, and the one escapism that I had was entertainment, TV, film, 
but it was also something that was making me feel very lonely at the same time because I would watch, say, Miss Congeniality, and I would keep watching Sandra Bullock as she would be revealed with uh, her makeover over and over again and being like, why do I keep watching? Oh, let's Google lesbian cinema. And I was like, wait a minute, this isn't... <laughs> no, I don't think I'm this gay, right? What is there an in-between, anyone? Um, so it, was, it gave me the opportunity to explore my sexuality whilst also putting me in a really dark place going... I'm, I'm none of these people, I'm not, I'm not there. Um, and it's taken years to understand and for my parents to stop telling me that I'm just having a bad day. <laughs> Love them dearly, hope they're not listening to this because no, they're fully aware. They, the, education, yeah. came down to education. Um, and it's something that as a production company, we are taking responsibility to make sure the content that we're producing, um, even if it's fiction, has an element of education in it. So for my parents to continuously at the age of 18, even after trying to take my own life at 15, was like, everyone has a bad day. I was like, well, fucking hell, <laughs> if they're in my head with a bad day, God help them. And then also them being really open that you fall in love with a person and a and not a gender, but then all of a sudden being like, wait a minute, <laughs> you've been with this girl for a very long time. So it was, it's that balance. And especially if you submerge yourself in a festival like BFI Flair, you really see the importance of representation on screen. And we have a huge journey to go with mental health. I can only speak from my diagnosis and also my sexuality, but um, I don't know if anyone watched The Bisexual with Desiree Akhavan on Channel 4, um, her previous film, Appropriate Behaviour. That was the first true viewing of bisexuality I'd ever seen on a screen. I don't think I've ever seen bipolar disorder like depicted on screen, or, or even if it's done, it's not done in a way that you were saying, which I think is very interesting, that people do just live with it. And, and we are living with it. So there's no answer to my I, I am. There's just a continuous responsibility. I feel like there's a responsibility to continually tell these stories, which I believe at the moment, whilst the industry is still very heavy in white males, uh, aren't getting told. So um, I am trying to change that. Thank you for doing that as well. <laughs> And I want to stay with you, actually, for the first I have, because I think it, it speaks to your creativity as well. So you say you have one quote which forever gets me through the tricky times and shows the importance of how creativity can support and be an escape. It's by Virginia Woolf. How many times have people used a pen or paintbrush because they couldn't pull the trigger? Mm. Can you tell us about that quote? I've always been drawn to uh, America and Los Angeles and I love working out there and it's actually where we shot our bisexual film um, last year. And I was out there and I had an almighty episode, as in one of those episodes where you're waking up crying already. And all I knew is I had to sit in the armchair I was sitting in and not move. If I was to move, I was going to hurt myself. And... In that moment in time, when I have those moments, uh, I have a very tiny support group who I can just text and be like, just keep texting me, just keep texting me. 
And that was the quote which really resonated with me at that point and has stuck with me in the last year to nine months. It's quite early. It's, I haven't had that quote that long, so it's, but it's one of those things where you're like, that is it. I'm out in my favourite place in the entire world creating content and, and making stories. I still want to fucking top myself. What is that? I couldn't, I couldn't work it out. And, um, and then having that quote is, is something which really, really spoke true to me. Because if I can continue to tell stories and um, reach people who are 10 years younger than me, like when I was that age um, and not and they don't feel alone, then it's worth sticking around to help other people. Absolutely. And how can people access your stories? How can people find out about the work that you're doing? Mini Productions is, is the production company. My email address is on there. You can find me on Twitter at April underscore underscore Kelly, because I had to be awkward with two. <laughs> um, I'm so accessible, guys. Like, I, Please do come find me, talk to me. would love it. That's great. Thanks, April. And Mark, you, you say, I have a son who is 12 years old and he's much more aware of mental health than I was, but I have an aspiration that as a society, we piece together the wisdom and evidence that mean at key junctures in his life going forward, the playing field will be tipped in favour of his mental health. What would that mean for our families, schools, workplaces and communities? When I was going for this, uh, for this job, to be chief executive of the Mental Health Foundation, whose mission it is is to find and address the sources of mental ill health. I put up the slides of the progress we've made in relation to all sorts of physical conditions and physical illnesses, communicable diseases, all around the world. We've made massive progress on our physical health. The average age around the world is now 70 years old. Illiteracy rates have plummeted. Kids dying before they're five has plummeted. And yet the rates of mental ill health and distress continue to creep upwards. I've put a slide up about Martin Luther King with this sense of vision, because I just, I just think that the big challenge facing us as a society is that we put mental health, brackets probably, and the environment, at the center of how we build our society. We say that's our aspiration that we want people to be able to thrive enough. We want to be able to do everything we can through a lens of how, and, and it has ramifications in all in every field of, of life. You know, there's so much we could be doing in our schools. There's so much we could be doing uh, supporting young parents to have a psychologically informed understanding of what's happening in kids' brains. I just saw something, just a really small example of a study that came over from America looking at very prematurely born kids. Uh, now, the evidence is that if you go through a really premature birth, both the parents and the kids are at risk of a range of physical but also men experiencing mental health problems. And they say, what can we do about this? You know, a society that prioritised mental health would, would try to reduce the trauma as much as possible, and they just had these really simple interventions, really human and it was they had a second carer whose only responsibility was to nurture and ensure that the babe, while the doctor was doing the treatment, the physical treatment, that they were nurturing the emotional and addressing any degree of comfort or distress on the. And the, the results, in terms of the short-term and long-term health benefits of attending to the emotions of a 
premature baby going through the trauma of surviving the first few moments of life are incredible. And this is the sort of wisdom and action on a human level we could be taking um, in our families, in our schools, in our workplaces. And that's what I'm really excited about. And our individual and collective well-being is so important. Start with that and build everything out from there. Everything out from there. And, um, yeah, the the results will be, I think, incredible. I agree. And where can people find out more about the work of the Mental Health Foundation? We're at mentalhealth.org.uk. Come see us in London Bridge. And we put in lots of resources out. We want to effectively do three things. Look at what we can do as a society, what we can do as individuals, but also we do a lot of work with those at greatest risk because we want to be able to support those who are most vulnerable, be able to uh, protect and sustain their mental health. So it's a movement and we're all involved in it. So um, we just want to do the best we can, play our full part. Thank you for doing that as well. Yvette, you're, I have... I have hopes that we can use the conversation on mental health to put pressure on the government to properly fund NHS mental health services. I've said it several times now, I think, in this in this panel, but I've been a journalist my whole working life, so it's easy to get cynical about politicians and all that sort of thing, but really we need to sort of start working together to improve NHS funding. If we've had a mental health issue, which I'm sure a lot of you have, you know yourselves, waiting lists are ridiculously long, the treatment programs that you get a lot of the time are ridiculously short. Uh, one of my very dear friends, um, she had postnatal depression recently, and I was just absolutely horrified by how short her program of counselling was. I mean, it's just, it's not good enough. Um, so we need more funding, we need more pressure on the government. Because at the moment, you know, lots of people do talk about mental health, and that's fantastic. We're really lucky that we're in a moment where mental health is having a moment and people are talking about it more but what I'd really love is for that to now translate to action and the great thing about that is you know every single one of you can get on Twitter or you can google your local MP find out who the hell they are get on their case email them and just sort of say look what are you doing in my in my local area to improve the situation find out what's going on in your local area how you can get involved so where can people find out more information about mentally yours and you sure so you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Yvette Caster, which is Y-V-E-T-T-E-C-A-S-T-E-R, like sugar. I'm also on Instagram. I do weekly chats now about bipolar disorder on Sunday nights just because they're fun. Um, I'm also on Facebook at Yvette Caster Journalist. Uh, the, the podcast is called Mentally Yours. It's every week. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Audio Boom, and Spotify. Thank you. Grace, we're going to end with your I have, which is I have so much motivation and determination to heal and then in turn be an example and light for other women to heal too because I want us all to raise children that won't have to heal from trauma the way we had to. Amen. I feel like this, this is like the first generation to like truly heal and work on themselves and um, healing from trauma isn't just you, it's usually just ancestral. It's like your mum's trauma and your grand's trauma and it's passed down. Um, and I think that I have a lot of motivation because I feel like when I become a mum, that's I've broken the, the cycle then in my family with all the issues that we've had. A lot of the time, like you have representation, like April said, really matters. And 
I think a lot of people have a privilege and mine just happens to be that I have a large following. So I wanna, I just think, what can I do? So when I die, like what is my legacy? And I feel like it's just gonna be like leaving my light. And I think I get daily messages like I've gone to therapy because of you or I've realized I've got this because of you. And that's all I want. I want women to um, know that they're the shit basically. Um, and I think I do that by just being myself and talking about the good and the bad. So yeah, I just try and make it um, easy for people to understand. And my audience, like I'm from a council estate um, and I grew up quite marginalized. And I think that people like me don't have access a lot to mental health that they can resonate with. And I think that I'm a bridge between the two. So like I'm quite approachable and people wanna listen to me. So I try and just like utilize that and make it more, I have easier access. So I just think that I'm using my privilege and I want, that's what I think I'm meant to do basically. And thank you. And where can people find you? Uh, GracieFrancesca.com is my website. Um, and then I'm GraceFVictory on everything else. So Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. Uh, the Sister Space podcast on Spotify, iTunes, and Instagram. You lot are pros at, at reeling out those websites and emails. I'm, I'm okay, really can impressed. I just, can I just give a, a shout? Because I'm not a pro, but I know that my, my team will not be happy if I don't mention Mental Health Awareness Week, which this is going out in, engage with it. It's going to be, we're going to be doing the largest study we think that's ever been done on body image and our mental health. Nice. And it's going to be fascinating. So do your own thing, but engage with it and uh, it'll be great. Please do. I'm going to end there and say thank you. I've really enjoyed talking to you all and it's been a real privilege to sit on the stage with you all. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank Thank you for listening to this special episode of I Am, I Have, The Panel, recorded at Happerful Magazine's Podfest for Mental Health, supported by Counselling Directory. If you'd like to read more about mental health and wellbeing, head over to happerful.com and sign up to receive a free e-edition of the magazine every month. If you're looking for local counselling support, you can find over 15,000 counsellors at your fingertips at counselling-directory.org.uk. You can also find information about mental health support at mentalhealth.org.uk. And if you need to speak to someone immediately, the Samaritans are available 24 hours a day on 116 123. And you can also email joe at samaritans.org. Help is available. This podcast has been produced by Happiful. If you've enjoyed listening, please subscribe, rate, review and share. And please join us again soon. Mm-hmm.